Section 28 of the Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Bruce McFadden. The Natural History, Volume 7 by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Book 36, Chapters 1 to 4. Book 36, The Natural History of Stones, Chapter 1 Luxury Displayed in the Use of Various Kinds of Marble It now remains for us to speak of stones, or, in other words, the leading folly of the day, to say nothing at all of our taste for gems and amber, crystal, and marine vases. For everything of which we have previously treated down to the present book may, by some possibility or other, have the appearance of having been created for the sake of man. But as to the mountains, nature has made those for herself, as a kind of bulwark for keeping together the bowels of the earth, as also for the purpose of curbing the violence of the rivers, of breaking the waves of the sea, and so by opposing to them the very hardest of her materials, putting a check upon those elements which are never at rest. And yet we must hew down these mountains, forsooth, and carry them off, and this for no other reason than to gratify our luxurious inclinations, heights which in former days it was reckoned a miracle even to have crossed. Our forefathers regarded as a prodigy the passage of the Alps, first by Hannibal, and more recently by the Cimbri, but at the present day these very mountains are cut asunder to yield us a thousand different marbles. Promontories are thrown open to the sea, and the face of nature is being everywhere reduced to a level. We now carry away the barriers that were designed for the separation of one nation from another. We construct ships for the transport of our marbles, and amid the waves, the most boisterous elements of nature, we convey the summits of the mountains to and fro. A thing, however, that is even less unpardonable than to go on the search amid the regions of the clouds for vessels with which to cool our drafts, and to excavate rocks towering to the very heavens, in order that we may have the satisfaction of drinking from ice. Let each reflect, when he hears of the high prices set upon these things, when he sees these ponderous masses carted and carried away, how many there are whose life is passed far more happily without them. For what utility or for what so-called pleasure do mortals make themselves the agents, or more truly speaking, the victims of such undertakings, except in order that others may take their repose in the midst of variegated stones? Just as though, too, the shades of night which occupy one half of each man's existence would forbear to curtail these imaginary delights. Chapter 2. Who was the first to employ marble in public buildings? Indeed, while making these reflections, one cannot but feel ashamed of the men of ancient times, even. There are still in existence sensorial laws which forbid the kernels in the neck of swine to be served at table, dormice too, and other things too trifling to mention, and yet there has been no law passed forbidding marble to be imported, or the seas to be traversed in search of it. It may possibly be observed that this was because marble was not then introduced. Such, however, is not the fact. For in the idol ship of Emscarus, 360 columns were to be seen imported for the decorations of a temporary theater, too, one that was destined to be in use for barely a single month. And yet the laws were silent thereon. 
in a spirit of indulgence for the amusements of the public, no doubt. But then why such indulgence? Or how do vices more insidiously steal upon us than under the plea of serving the public? By what other way, in fact, did ivory, gold, and precious stones first come into use with private individuals? Can we say that there is now anything that we have reserved for the exclusive use of the gods? However, be it so, let us admit of this indulgence for the amusements of the public. But still, why did the laws maintain their silence when the largest of these columns, pillars of Luculean marble, as much as eight and thirty feet in height, were erected in the atrium of Scarus, a thing, too, that was not done privately or in secret, for the contractor for the public sewers compelled him to give security for the possible damage that might be done in the carriage of them to the Palatium. When so bad an example as this was set, would it not have been advisable to take some precautions for the preservation of the public morals? And yet the laws still preserved their silence. When such enormous masses as these were being carried past the earthenware pediments of the temples of the gods to the house of a private individual. Chapter 3 Who was the first to erect columns of foreign marble at Rome? And yet it cannot be said that Scarus, by way of a first essay in vice, took the city by surprise, in a state of ignorance and totally unguarded against such evils as these. Already had El Crassus, the orator, he who was the first to possess pillars of foreign marble, and in this same Palatium too received from Ambrutus, on the occasion of a dispute, the nickname of the Palatine Venus, for his indulgence in this kind of luxury. The material, I should remark, was Hymetian marble, and the pillars were but six in number, and not exceeding some twelve feet in height. Our forefathers were guilty of this omission, no doubt, because morals were universally contaminated, and seeing that things which had been interdicted had been forbidden in vain, they preferred the absence of laws to laws that were no better than a dead letter. These particulars, and others in the sequel, will show that we are so far improved. For who is there at the present day that has in his atrium any such massive columns as these of Scarus? But before proceeding to treat of the several varieties of this material, it will be as well to mention the various artists and the degrees of estimation in which they are held who have worked in marble. We will, therefore, proceed to review the sculptors who have flourished at different periods. Chapter 4 The first artists who excelled in the sculpture of marble and the various periods at which they flourished, the Mausoleum in Caria, the most celebrated sculptors and works in marble, 225 in number. The first artists who distinguished themselves in the sculpture of marble were de Paenas and Chiles, natives of the Isle of Crete. At this period the Medians were still in power, and Cyrus had not begun to reign in Persia, their date being about the 50th Olympiad. They afterwards repaired to Shikon, a state which for a length of time was the adopted country of all such pursuits as these. The people of Shikon had made a contract with them for the execution of certain statues of the gods, but before completing the work the artists complained of some injustice being done them and retired to Aetolia. Immediately upon this the state was afflicted with sterility and famine, and dreadful consternation was the result. Upon inquiry being made as to a remedy for these evils, the Pythian Apollo made answer that Dipaenus and Chiles must complete the statues of the gods, an object which was attained at the cost of great concessions and considerable sums of money. The statues were those of Apollo, Diana, Hercules, and Minerva, 
the last of which was afterward struck by lightning. Before these artists were in existence, there had already appeared Melus, a sculptor of the Isle of Chios, and in succession to him, his son Michades, and his grandson Archemus, whose sons Bupalus and Atenis afterwards attained the highest eminence in the art. These last were contemporaries of the poet Eponox, who, it is well known, lived in the 60th Olympiad. Now if a person only reckons, going upwards, that the art of sculpture must have necessarily originated about the commencement of the era of the Olympiads, Eponox, being a man notorious for his ugliness, the two artists, by way of joke, exhibited a statue of him for the ridicule of the public. Indignant at this, the poet emptied upon them all the bitterness of his verses, to such an extent indeed that as some believed they were driven to hang themselves in despair. This, however, was not the fact. For at a later period these artists executed a number of statues in the neighboring islands, at Delos, for example, with an inscription subjoined to the effect that Chios was rendered famous not only by its vines, but by the works of the sons of Archermus as well. The people of Lassos still show a Diana that was made by them, and we find mention also made of a Diana at Chios, the work of their hands. It is erected on an elevated spot, and the features appear stern to a person as he enters, and joyous as he departs. At Rome there are some statues by these artists on the summit of the temple of the Palatine Apollo, and indeed in most of the buildings that were erected by the late Emperor Augustus. At Delos, on the Isle of Lesbos, there were formerly some sculptures by their father to be seen. Ambracha, too, Argos, and Cleone were filled with productions of the sculptor de Paenus. All these artists, however, used nothing but the white marble of the Isle of Peros, a stone which was known as Leishnis, at first because, according to Varro, it was cut out in quarries by lamplight. Since their time, many other whiter marbles have been discovered, and very recently that of the quarries of Luna. With reference to the marble of Peros, there is one very marvelous circumstance related. In a single block that was split with wedges, a figure of Selenus made its appearance. We must not admit to remark that the art of sculpture is of more ancient date than those of painting and of statuary in bronze, both of which commenced with Phidias in the 83rd Olympiad, or in other words, about 332 years later. Indeed, it is said that Phidias himself worked in marble, and that there is a Venus of his at Aome, a work of extraordinary beauty in the buildings of Octavia. A thing, however, that is universally admitted is the fact that he was the instructor of Alcalmes, the Athenian, one of the most famous among the sculptors. By this last artist there are numerous statues in the temples at Athens, as also, without the walls there, the celebrated Venus, known as the Aphrodite in Kipis, a work to which Phidias himself, it is said, put the finishing hand. Another disciple also of Phidias was Agoracritus of Peros, a great favorite with his master on account of his extremely youthful age, and for which reason it is said Phidias gave his own name to many of that artist's work. The two pupils entering into a contest as to the superior execution of a statue of Venus, Alcamenes was successful, not that his work was superior, but because his fellow citizens chose to give their suffrages in his favor in preference to a stranger. It was for this reason, it is said, that Agoracritus sold his statue on the express condition that it should never be taken to Athens and changed its name to that of Nemesis. It was accordingly erected at Hehamnus, a borough of Attica, 
and M. Varro has considered it superior to every other statue. There is also to be seen in the temple of the Great Mother in the same city another work by Agoracritus. Among all nations which the frame of the Olympian Jupiter has reached, Phidias is looked upon, beyond all doubt, as the most famous of artists. But to let those who have never even seen his works know how deservedly he is esteemed, we will take this opportunity of adducing a few slight proofs of the genius which he displayed. In doing this we shall not appeal to the beauty of his Olympian Jupiter, nor yet to the vast proportions of his Athenian Minerva, six and twenty cubits in height, and composed of ivory and gold. But it is to the shield of this last statue that we shall draw attention, upon the convex face of which he has chased a combat of the Amazons, while, upon the concave side of it, he has represented the battle between the gods and the giants. Upon the sandals again we see the wars of the Lapithae and Centaurs, so careful has he been to fill every smallest portion of his work with some proof or other of his artistic skill. To the story chased upon the pedestal of the statue, the name of the birth of Pandora has been given, and the figures of newborn gods to be seen upon it are no less than twenty in number. The figure of victory in particular is most admirable, and connoisseurs are greatly struck with the serpent and the sphinx in bronze lying beneath the point of the spear. Let thus much be said incidentally in reference to an artist who can never be sufficiently praised, if only to let it be understood that the richness of his genius was always equal to itself, even in the very smallest details. When speaking of the statuaries, we have already given the period at which Praxiteles flourished, an artist who, in the glory which he acquired by his works in marble, surpassed even himself. There are some works of his in the Ceramicus at Athens, but superior to all the statues, not only of Praxiteles, but of any other artist that ever existed, is his Canadian Venus, for the inspection of which many persons before now have purposely undertaken a voyage to Canidos. The artist who made two statues of the goddess and offered them both for sale, one of them was represented with drapery, and for this reason was preferred by the people of Kos, who had the choice. The second was offered them at the same price, but on the grounds of propriety and modesty, they thought fit to choose the other. Upon this, the Canadians purchased the rejected statue, and immensely superior has it always been held in general estimation. At a later period, King Nicomedes wished to purchase this statue of the Canadians, and made them an offer to pay off the whole of their public debt, which was very large. They preferred, however, to submit to any extremity rather than part with it, and with good reason, for by this statue Praxiteles has perpetuated the glory of Canidos. The little temple in which it is placed is open on all sides, so that the beauties of the statue admit of being seen from every point of view, an arrangement which was favored by the goddess herself, it is generally believed. Indeed, from whatever point it is viewed, its execution is equally worthy of admiration. A certain individual, it is said, became enamored of this statue, and concealing himself in the temple during the night, gratified his lustful passion upon it, traces of which are to be seen in a stain left upon the marble. There are also at Canidos some other statues in marble, the productions of illustrious artists, a father Liber by Bryaxis, another by Scalpus, and a Minerva by the same hand. Indeed, there is no greater proof of the supreme excellence of the Venus of Praxiteles than in the fact that amid such productions as these it is the only one that we generally find noticed. 
By Praxiteles, too, there is a Cupid, a statue which occasioned one of the charges brought by Cicero against Veres, and for the sake of seeing which persons used to visit Thespiae. On the present day it is said to be seen at the schools of Octavia. By the same artist there is also another Cupid without drapery at Parium, a colony of the Propontis, equal to the Canadian Venus in the fineness of its execution, and said to have been the object of a similar outrage. For one Alsetas, a Bodian, becoming deeply enamored of it, left upon the marble similar traces of the violence of his passion. At Rome there are, by Praxiteles, a Flora, a Triptolemus, and a Ceres in the gardens of Servilius, statues of good success and good fortune in the capital, as also some Myandides, and figures known as Theodes and Caryatides, some Sileni, to be seen in the memorial buildings of Asinius Polio and the statues of Apollo and Neptune. Cephisodocus, the son of Proxateles, inherited his father's talent. There is by him, at Pergamus, a splendid group of wrestlers, a work that has been highly praised and in which the fingers have all the appearance of being impressed upon real flesh rather than upon marble. At Aomi there are, by him, a Latona in the temple of the Palatium, a Venus in the buildings that are memorials of Asinius Polio, and an Escalapius and a Diana in the temple of Juno situate within the porticos of Octavia. Scopus rivals these artists in fame. There are, by him, a Venus and a Pothos, statues which are venerated at Samothrace in the most august ceremonials. He was also the sculptor of the Palatine Apollo, a Vesta seated in the gardens of Servilius and represented with two bends around her, a work that has been highly praised. Two similar bends to be seen upon the buildings of Asinius Polio and some figures of Canephori in the same place. But the most highly esteemed of all his works are those in the temple erected by Caneus Domitius in the Flaminian Circus. A figure of Neptune himself, Athetus and Achilles, Nereides seated upon dolphins, cetaceous fishes and seahorses, tritons, the train of Porcus, and whales, and numerous other sea monsters all by the same hand. An admirable piece of workmanship, even if it had taken a whole life to complete it. In addition to the works by him already mentioned and others of the existence of which we are ignorant, there is still to be seen a colossal Mara of his, seated in the temple, erected by Brutus Calaicus, also in the Flaminian Circus, as also a naked Venus of an anterior date to that by Praxiteles, and a production that would be quite sufficient to establish the renown of any other place. At Rome, it is true, it is quite lost sight of amid such a vast multitude of similar works of art, and then besides, the inattention to these matters that is induced by such vast numbers of duties and so many items of business quite precludes the generality of persons from devoting their thoughts to the subject. For in fact, the admiration that is due to this art not only demands an abundance of leisure, but requires that profound silence should reign upon the spot. Hence it is that the artist is now forgotten who executed the statue of Venus that was dedicated by the emperor Vespasianus in the Temple of Peace, a work well worthy of the high repute of ancient times. With reference, too, to the dying children of Naobi, in the Temple of the Socian Apollo, there is an equal degree of uncertainty, whether it is the work of Scopus or of Praxiteles. 
so too as to the father janus a work that was brought from egypt and dedicated in his temple by augustus it is a question by which of these two artists it was made at the present day however it is quite hidden from us by the quantity of gold that covers it the same question too arises with reference to the cupid brandishing a thunderbolt now to be seen in the curia of octavia the only thing in fact that is affirmed with any degree of certainty respecting it is that it is a likeness of aliyabiads who was the handsomest man of his day there are too in the schools of octavia many other highly attractive works the authors of which are now unknown four satyrs for example one of which carries in his arms a father liber robed in the pala another similarly supports the goddess libera a third is pacifying a child who is crying and the fourth is giving a child some water to drink from a cup. Two zephyrs also who agitate their flowing drapery with their breath. No less is the uncertainty that prevails as to the authors of the statues now to be seen in the Septa, an Olympus and Pan, and a Chiron and Achilles, and yet their high reputation has caused them to be deemed valuable enough for their keepers to be made answerable for their safety at the cost of their lives. Scopus had for rivals and contemporaries Brioxes, Timotheus, and Leochares, artists whom we are bound to mention together, from the fact that they worked together at the mausoleum, such being the name of the tomb that was erected by his wife Artemisia in honor of Mausolus, a petty king of Cardia, who died in the second year of the 107th Olympiad it was through the exertions of these artists more particularly that this work came to be reckoned one of the seven wonders of the world the circumference of this building is in all four hundred and forty feet and the breadth from the north to south sixty-three the two fronts being not so wide in extent it is twenty-five cubits in height and is surrounded with six and thirty columns the outer circumference being known as the teron the east side was sculpted by Scopus, the north by Briaxis, the south by Timotheus, and the west by Leochares. But before their task was completed, Queen Artemisia died. They did not leave their work, however, until it was finished. Considering that it was at once a memorial of their own fame and of the sculptor's art, and to this day even it is undecided which of them has excelled. A fifth artist also took part in the work, for above the Tehran there is a pyramid erected, equal in height to the building below, and formed of four and twenty steps, which gradually taper upward towards the summit, a platform crowned with a representation of a four-horse chariot by Pythes. This addition makes the total height of the work one hundred and forty feet. There is at Rome, by Timotheus, a Diana in the Temple of Apollo, in the Palatium, the head of which has been replaced by a Vianus Evander. A Hercules, too, by Menestratus, is greatly admired and there is a Hecate of his at Ephesus, in the temple of Diana there, behind the sanctuary. The keepers of the temple recommend persons when viewing it to be careful of their eyes, so remarkably radiant is the marble. No less esteemed, too, are the statues of the Graces, in the Propyleum at Athens, the workmanship of Socrates the sculptor, a different person from the painter of that name. Though identical with him in the opinion of some, as to Myron, who is so highly praised for his works in bronze, there is by him, at Smyrna, an old woman intoxicated, a work that is held in high estimation. Asinius Polio, a man of a warm and ardent temperament, was determined that the buildings which he erected as memorials of himself should be made as attractive as possible, 
For here we see groups representing nymphs carried off by centaurs, a work of Arcesilas, the Thespiades by Cleomenes, Oceanus and Jupiter by Heniochus, Apiades by Stephanus, Hermerotes by Tariscus, not the chaser in silver already mentioned, but a native of Trales, a Jupiter Hospitales by Papilus, a pupil of Praxiteles, Zetus and Amphion with Birche the bull and the halter, all sculptured from a single block of marble, the work of Apollonius and Tariscus, and brought to Rome from Rhodes. These two artists made it a sort of rivalry as to their parentage, for they declared that although Apollodorus was their natural progenitor, Menecrates would appear to have been their father. In the same place, too, there is a father Liber by Euchitides, highly praised. Near the portico of Octavia there is an Apollo by Feliscus of Rhodes, placed in the temple of that god, a Latona and Diana also, the nine muses, and another Apollo without drapery. The Apollo holding the lyre in the same temple was executed by Tibarchides. In the temple of Juno, within the porticos of Octavia, there is a figure of that goddess, executed by Dionysius, and another by Polycles, and also other statues by Praxiteles. This Polycles, too, in conjunction with Dionysius, the son of Timarchides, made the statue of Jupiter which is to be seen in the adjoining temple. The figures of Pan and Olympus wrestling in the same place are by Heliodorus, and they are considered to be the next finest group of this nature in all the world. The same artist also executed a Venus at the bath, and Polycharmus, another Venus, in an erect posture. By the honorable place which the work of Lysias occupies, we may see in what high esteem it was held by the late emperor Augustus, who consecrated it in honor of his father Octavius, in the Palatium placing it on an arch within a small temple adorned with columns. It is the figure of a four-horse chariot with an Apollo and Diana, all sculptured from a single block. I find it stated also that the Apollo by Calamis, the chaser already mentioned, the pugilist by Dereclides, and the statue of Callisthenes, the historian, by Amphistratus. All of them now in the gardens of Servilius are works highly esteemed. Beyond these there are not many sculptors of high repute, for in the case of several works of very great excellence, the number of artists that have been engaged upon them has proved a considerable obstacle to the fame of each, no individual being able to engross the whole of the credit, and it being impossible, to award it in due proportion to the names of the several artists combined. Such is the case with the Laocoat, for example, in the palace of the Emperor Titus, a work that may be looked upon as preferable to any other production of the art of painting or of statuary. It is sculptured from a single block, both the main figure as well as the children and the serpents, with their marvelous folds. This group was made in concert by three most eminent artists, Agesander, Polydorus, and Athenodorus, natives of Ilhodes. In similar manner also the palaces of the Caesars in the Palatium have been filled with most splendid statuary. The work of Craterus, in conjunction with Pithodorus, of Polydeuses, with Hermoleus, and of another Pithodorus, with Artemon. Some of the statues also are by Aphrodisius of Trales, who worked alone. The Pantheon of Agrippa has been decorated by Diogenes of Athens, and the Caryatides by him, which form the columns of that temple, are looked upon as masterpieces of excellence. 
the same too with the statues that are placed upon the roof, though in consequences of the height they have not had an opportunity of being so well appreciated. Without glory, and excluded from every temple, is the statue of Hercules, in honor of whom the Carthaginians were accustomed to sacrifice human victims every year. It stands upon the ground before the entrance of the portico of the nations. There were erected, too, near the temple of Felicity, the statues of the Thespian Muses, of one of which, according to Varro, Hunius Piscicullus, a Roman of equestrian rank, became enamored. Pasiteles, too, speaks in terms of high admiration of them, the artist who wrote five books on the most celebrated works throughout the world. Born upon the Grecian shores of Italy and presented with the Roman citizenship granted to the cities of those parts, Parsiteles constructed the ivory statue of Jupiter, which is now in the temple of Metellus on the road to the Campus Martius. It so happened that being one day at the docks where there were some wild beasts from Africa, while he was viewing through the bars of a cage, a lion which he was engaged in drawing, a panther made its escape from another cage, to the no small danger of this most careful artist. He executed many other works, it is said, but we do not find the names of them specifically mentioned. Archesilais also is an artist highly extolled by Varro, who states that he had in his possession a lioness in marble of his, and winged cupids playing with it, some holding it with cords and others making it drink from a horn, the whole sculptured from a single block. He says also that the fourteen figures around the theater of Pompeius, representing different nations, are the work of Coponius. I find it stated that Canachus, an artist highly praised among the statuaries in bronze, executed some works also in marble. Sarus too and Batracus must not be forgotten. Lacedaemonians by birth, who built the temples enclosed by the porticos of Octavia. Some are of the opinion that these artists were very wealthy men, and that they erected these buildings at their own expense, expecting to be allowed to inscribe their names thereon, but that this indulgence being refused them, they adopted another method of attaining their object. At all events, there are still to be seen at the present day on the spirals of the columns the figures of a lizard and a frog, emblematical of their names. In the Temple of Jupiter by the same artist, the paintings, as well as all the other ornaments, bear reference to the worship of a goddess. The fact is that when the Temple of Juno was completed, the porters, as it is said, who were entrusted with the carriage of the statues, made an exchange of them, and on religious grounds the mistake was left uncorrected, from an impression that it had been, by the intervention of the divinities themselves, that this seat of worship had been thus shared between them. Hence it is that we see in the temple of Juno also the ornaments which properly pertain to the worship of Jupiter. Some minute works in marble have also gained reputation for their artists. By Myrmichides there was a four-horse chariot, so small that it could be covered driver in all by the wings of a fly, and by Calabretes some ants in marble, the feet and other limbs of which were so fine as to escape the sight. End of section 28